Welcome to Boundless Pursuit, a weekly podcast providing motivation, entertainment, and education to anglers and outdoorsmen. I hope that the stories you'll find here will encourage you to chase your passion more fervently, to open your mind to new opportunities and perspectives. Your engagement and feedback is critical to the growth of this show, and I would love to hear your suggestions on topics or potential guests. You can reach me at boundlesspursuitfishing at gmail.com or at my website, www.boundless-pursuit.com. That's where you'll find all related articles, media, and merchandise. Please remember, the show will gain traction from your support. Be sure to like, comment, and share this podcast to your friends and connections. I'm your host, David Graham. Now let's get on to today's episode. With the format of this podcast, I really aim to stay diverse. Saltwater, freshwater, game species, and non-game species all the same. But the other side of that is trying to stay balanced in showcasing fishing opportunities that you have right in your own backyard, as well as stories from the bucket list. But why not have both? I am living in Southwest Florida, dreaming of South America. And today's guest was really fun for me because he too lives right here in Southwest Florida, probably 20 minutes down the street from me, but he frequently travels to South America and fishes in the jungles of the Amazon. His name is Eric Berger of the Jersey in Florida Fishing YouTube channel. And Eric will spend time chasing peacock bass in South Florida one day, then be chasing the exact same in South America the next day, which is just kind of a pretty cool angle. The guy has made numerous trips around South Florida for bass, snook, tarpon, and just your typical Everglades species while also blending his passion for South American fish and reptiles. And his YouTube channel is just kind of unique in the way that it blends the two worlds, lending motivation to chase fish in your backyard while also dreaming and living those dreams chasing bucket list species like Arapaima, Aymara, and these gigantic Piraiba catfish. Is the guy some kind of millionaire? No. He works right here in Southwest Florida at a local tackle store. He just simply gets after it, prioritizes, and makes these things happen. And he's just kind enough to share those experiences on his YouTube channel. Eric is just a good dude, and we've crossed paths one time in person. I hope that we can do so again, hopefully in the near future. But until then, all I have is this podcast for you to enjoy, and I think you will. This is Eric of the Jersey and Florida Fishing Channel. All right, Eric, glad to finally get you on here. We've met very, very briefly at Seat to Table. You probably thought I was some weirdo because I kept running over. I'm like, hey, hey, we, I know you. Uh, I was like, this dude probably thinks I'm some kind of jackass. But, um, but you're the first guy I've had on here that lives local. We live like, I don't know, probably 20 minutes down the road from each other. We live nearby. So you're living in Florida. Southwest Florida, like me, by way of New Jersey, right? So you're a Jersey transplant. Uh, but welcome. How's everything going? Everything been all right? I don't, I don't know. I, I'm kind of curious. How'd you fare after the storm? You know, all all the uh, obligatory questions that a Southwest Florida person would ask another Southwest Florida person. Well, David, that storm. Let, let me tell you, that was a doozy for everyone here in Southwest Florida. But the night before. I was actually on a plane going to Guyana. 
I almost did not go to Guyana because my dad lives in Fort Myers and I knew there was going to be some craziness going on there and I wanted to stay for him, but he ensured me everything was going to be okay. Uh, So I went to Guyana, did my fishing trip, came back, but unfortunately my dad's property did get hit pretty hard by Hurricane Ian, several feet of water, uh, one of the houses, he has two houses on a property on a canal up in Fort Myers, got uh, pretty much destroyed. The other one flooded out pretty bad. So, yeah, it was quite a doozy, Hurricane Ian. Oh, man. Well, I hate to hear that. It was, uh, that's the first time I've been through anything like that. I know you've been in Florida longer than me. I've been here four years. But, uh, you know, like you probably heard the same thing I did. I, I came from Arkansas by way of South Carolina, by way <laughs> of Texas, by way of Oklahoma, by way of Arkansas. So I've been all over the place. Just bouncing around, huh? And it, that's kind of the funny thing is, like, everywhere I move, there's the aren't you worried about fill in the blank thing. You know, I'm moving to Texas or I'm moving to Oklahoma. Aren't you worried about tornadoes? tornadoes. I'm, moving to, I'm moving to Texas. Aren't you worried about, you know, uh, I don't know, rattlesnakes, MS-13? <laughs> yeah. I'm moving to Arkansas. Aren't you worried about your cousins? No. <laughs> but um, but obviously uh, I'm moving to Florida. Aren't you worried about hurricanes was a thing. And so, you know, I don't know. It's like everywhere you go, any part of the country has its thing. Polar bears, grizzly bears, alligators, landslides, Hmm. crazy pink haired people out West. Anyway, but, um, that's nuts, man. I, I actually, I didn't know that I was, I was curious, you know, it's like, you know, we got to check on each other, um, after that, because, I had actually just moved to Naples probably two months before uh, the storm hit. I was living on on the water in Fort Myers, like right off the Caloosahatchee. And wow. My old neighborhood got smoked. And um, we just, yeah, we just drove by there last weekend. And it's like, I don't know, man, they'll be cleaning up for a year from now. It's it's all the houses are, all the houses have basically their guts sitting outside in the lawn in a big pile, but. Um, I didn't know, you know, I wanted to dive into the Guyana thing. Obviously you have done a lot of trips that I'm very envious of. Um, but you know, you're, you've been humble enough to kind of, you know, we, we've started that dialogue about maybe even a potential trip this year, but, uh, I didn't know that you had actually been overseas when that happened. So, um, that kind of adds a different layer to this conversation. Uh, you know, it's, it's wild that you went to a place where I imagine you hit like a peak high. Like you're on a high catching all these incredible fish only to come home to, I don't know, a crashing exactly. low. But uh, yeah, exactly. let's, I mean, exactly I, l- let's get into that. But I don't want to go straight into the like the travels thing because you do a lot of awesome stuff around here. And one thing that I've been impressed about you is like you seem like you're really getting after it with your YouTube channel and like videography and YouTube stuff's like, or just making videos in general, something I admire. I feel like it's a skill that I don't have. I'm like a simple blogger. I like to write about what I do, but I like quickly realized in the last decade, it's like, it's just a It's like, it's one of those things I admire. And I, and I know it's one of those things. If I really want to share what I'm passionate about, I, I have to get better at, it. I have to like develop that skill, but just kind of talk to me about at least let's start with some of your local endeavors and just your YouTube channel. I mean, introduce people listening now, what the YouTube channel is, what it entails, like what is your objective? What's kind of like your theme? Or I already kind of introduced myself. I'm Jersey NFL fishing channel. I have a channel on YouTube. It's all about fishing in Florida, 
and around the world. Um, I really go after snook and peacock bass here in Southwest Florida, um, which is really cool because it kind of goes hand in hand, peacock bass in Florida, peacock bass in South America. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's pretty interesting. And actually the species that I was catching in Guyana is the same exact species that we have here in South Florida. So very interesting. Um, but the whole YouTube thing and what you're kind of saying uh, about skills, I don't have any background in video and editing and filmmaking, nothing like that whatsoever. I really have no idea how I'm doing it. I kind of mm -hmm. just wing it as I go. And it seems like it's kind of working out, surprisingly. I never thought I would make it this far onto monetization. I have over 4,000 subscribers now. So Jersey NFL Fishing Channel is starting to take off. It's pretty yeah. cool. Yeah, it's awesome. Well, you know what? It's kind of funny you mentioned that. Like, I think that self-starter element, like, you, you don't want to lose that. You know what I mean? I love to, like, watch some videos where it's just, like, a visual masterpiece. You got drones. You got underwater yeah. footage. You got, like, 360-degree rotations and like high tech stuff. it's it's awesome and it's very admirable and it's like one of those things that's like visually stimulating but at the same time there's like a different level of appreciation when it's clearly like you're the one that like that's making producing editing you're you're carrying the camera you're like you're you're the one-man show and it's getting a lot of lot of people outside doing the same thing so i don't know it's i think there's some value in and and staying small to a point. Not that uh, not that you should never start getting drones up in the air. See, what I'm scared about is like I'm so reckless with my gear. I mean, I've, I've been fishing my whole life. That if you saw the gear that I have, you'd laugh because I don't have much. I like get by with very little, and a lot of that is because I just beat the holy hell out of my stuff. My rods are all destined to break. All my gear is destined to fail. So I'm like, I look at a drone. I'm like, man. I really want to start using one of those things and getting some shots out here. But it, but knowing, it's not even a maybe, knowing that that thing's going to end up down in the water and I'm going to be down a couple thousand bucks, I'm like, I just, I can't do it. But um, Yeah, yeah. I mean, I know what you mean by that. Um, I do have a drone. I've used it a few times. <laughs> I crashed it once and it cost oh, no. me $50. I had it on uh, follow me mode where it was just following me around. It was hovering above my head as I was standing still talking and the drone just took off into a tree and then crashed into the ground and broke. So that was $750. And actually just last weekend filming a video, the video just went up uh, this yesterday, I think it was, or two days ago. Um, I destroyed my brand new $2,000 camera. So yeah, um, I'm trying to get nice <laughs> stuff for this YouTube channel yeah. to make it a little more professional than just some guy with a GoPro on his chest. But, um, yeah, I, I'm destroying stuff. It's costing money. So I know what you mean by that. Yeah, that's hard to pull off. I, I'm like, I am convinced that there's somebody in some remote location controlling the drone unbeknown to you that is like intentionally crashing it so that you'll, you know, I don't know, have to go get another one or have to pay something. Yeah. But that's funny. Like You're on follower mode. I'm just sitting there kind of like envisioning you kind of like fishing, doing your thing, narrating, and then all of a sudden the buzz of the drone goes quiet. Wait a minute. <laughs> I'm not being followed anymore. Like, <laughs> but that's crazy. Well, what I think is cool too, and I want to sort of go that direction, maybe with the peacock bass thing is, um, I like that you're doing a lot of your peacock stuff in Southwest Florida, because I feel like our peacock scene is like 
living in the shadows of the stuff over on the other side of the state. So, I mean, without obviously spot burning, give me a little bit of idea on, on that, because I think a lot of people neglect, even myself, I will drive past Golden Gate. I'll drive yeah. past some of those areas and go fish the other side of the state looking for peacocks. A lot of people that I speak to that go for peacock bass, they drive past Golden Gate. They drive all the way down 41, all the way to the east side towards Miami to the canals over there, which is very true. But indeed, you are passing up some amazing fishing spots for some beautiful peacock bass. Right here in Naples, right on the main roadways all over Naples, including right across the street from me, there's a bunch of peacock bass. I mean, I've caught them up to eight pounds personally here in Naples. So that's pretty impressive. Oh, yeah. Um, so don't go all the way to Miami, guys. I mean, stay local here in Naples. There's a lot of peacock bass, a lot of other exotics, Oscars, wine, cichlids, and then obviously your native species, largemouth bowfin, which I know you like catching a bowfin. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> speaking all my language. Is, yeah. yeah. <laughs> all that is right here in Naples, Florida and down in the Everglades, local to Naples. Yeah, well, it what's, you know, the peacock thing over on the other side of the state is kind of cool, but I don't know, like pitching underneath shopping carts and, and having a crackhead jump out from under a bridge at you. Sometimes, I don't know. It's like, maybe not my scene, but you have found a couple of spots nestled in the Everglades where you're fishing for them, and at least there's like that aesthetic, you know, natural yeah. Florida beauty yeah. to to a point. So I envy that because it's probably touching a little closer to, I don't know, what, what you have found, you know, a little further south from here. But um, <laughs> yeah. but have you did you notice, though, you know, it's funny, just I, I want to talk about the Southwest Florida peacock bass thing. So like yeah. I mentioned earlier, I was living on a, a little canal right off the Caloosahatchee. This is south of the locks. So for people listening, they're like, OK, now they're losing me because they're talking about home waters and I ain't from there. Um, so the Caloosahatchee river feeds straight into saltwater out, out into the Gulf. Um, yeah. so there's, there's a series of locks for people listening and it just gets progressively more fresh water as you go above these locks. But I live below the locks. So there's nothing between where I lived and the ocean. It's not the kind of area that I, I thought there were no peacock bass in there, but actually it was like the very last day before we were moving out of that house. I went and looked off my dock like one last time. I'm not kidding you. When I saw a peacock bass below my dock, this thing looked like it was pushing 10 pounds. I'm like, what in the world? I lived there for like three years, never seen one. Like we, I mean, we, I catch bull sharks out there, tarpon, snook, stingray off the dock. We had a couple little sawfish come through one day. Like it's very, like very brackish water. I, I, I thought the peacock bass were not in there, that area, but this was a really, big like healthy mature fish so i don't know if somebody had thrown it in there but it's kind of clear to me they're starting to a little bit make a move around here so i have heard that the peacock bass are making a move a little north and that's pretty impressive to hear for me that you saw a peacock of that size yeah. maybe it was a everglades transplant someone caught it and brought it up there it's possible mm -hmm. but i have heard stories of peacocks in fort myers even cape coral and some of the canals. So that's definitely very interesting for me to hear even because I never even thought about fishing Fort Myers for peacock bass. I don't know if it, I don't know if it'd be worth it. Cause like I said, I mean, it's, and this was like heavy mangrove areas. It, to me, I had the impression maybe somebody had put it in there, but like I said, it was, it was 
a very healthy fish. And my eyes did not deceive me. I mean, this thing was chilling below the yeah. dock. I was like, oh, yeah. my gosh, monster. Mm. But uh, anyway, it's kind of funny that it's like, well, I'll never have a chance to catch one there. But uh, but yeah, I feel like the scene down here is, is definitely gets kind of neglected. But um, I was curious. I know we kind of had that recent cold spell. Do you have you, you notice in your areas get hit pretty hard from that? So to be perfectly honest, I have not been out a lot since I got back to Guyana due to Hurricane Ian damage um, yeah. between my father's property in Fort Myers and my job down in Marco Island. There was a lot of damage, not a lot of time for me to get out fishing. Um, but I have heard from subscribers from recent videos that I posted that along Route 41 in our area, there was a bunch of dead peacock bass and mine cichlids and oscars. So it definitely did affect um, the peacock bass population, but to what extent, mm -hmm. I am personally not sure yet. So I will be getting out there. Maybe tomorrow I'll be getting out there to see myself. Yeah, I guess I could see that on 41 where they don't really have like the depth variables. variables. They may not be able to duck in the deeper water and take cover. Right. Out there, they're just going to get blasted. But uh, I live on a little small pond here in Naples that has some peacocks. And then after that, I don't know, it was like early January. Whenever that real big for Florida standards, cold freeze came through. Yeah, we found a few of them, you know, zombie looking dead ones up on the, you know, along the margins of the pond after that. So I was like, well, cold spell got them, but I got them in the neighborhood pond. I've never even fished for them. It's it's kind of like yeah. a kid, it's like a kid's fishing pond, though. I don't I'll take my daughters down there and fish a little bit, yeah. but yeah, I haven't messed with them. Well, yeah, dude, that's cool, but um, uh, it's it's funny though that you, <laughs> it's just I don't know. I think the element of the fact that you fish from here and then you go all the way to South America to their home waters and catch the exact same species is funny. Like, tell me a little bit. I, what observations you? I mean, have you found like there to be a noticeable difference in the way they behave and the way that they like, you know, yes. the kind of stuff that you throw at them, how they fight? Any real differences? Um. So looks and um the fight is about the same but behavior as in catchability behavior is very different you go to guyana you could toss just about anything out there and you're going to catch a peacock bass here in southwest florida or south florida in general uh they're a little harder to catch i could toss a lure all day maybe at one or two but if i bring a bucket of shiners with me i'm catching one every five minutes yeah. So I think it's just the fact that there's a ton of pressure. There's a ton of people here, uh, locals fishing, people on vacation fishing for them. Um, and I just think the pressure thing is making them a little more weary on uh, and, and harder to catch. So there is a little bit of a behavioral just uh, difference. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I guess that makes sense with way more people are getting after them. I was kind of curious if almost they could be possibly more difficult to catch there because, I don't know, I figured they probably have more natural predators there, whereas here it's sort of like, I mean, maybe they run into the occasional alligator, but other than that, it's like, in the, especially over there in, like, the Miami side, they're pretty much running the shop in those canals, it seems like. I mean, I don't know yeah. of any other fish we have here that's more aggressive and more... I don't know, just adept at, I don't want to say taking over, but like there are peacock bass in every like, you know, it's like the rain, rain comes down for 10 minutes hard. You you walk over to the puddle that accumulated and there's a peacock bass in it. It's like, yeah. what? You're absolutely right. Every little puddle 
here in Florida has some sort of peacock bass or invasive cichlid species. <laughs> yeah, oh, especially the cichlids. Now that that one's crazy. Well, they make good bait if there's nothing else. They do. I mean, jeez. <laughs> I tell you what, though, the Mayan cichlids are concerning me. Um, I'm even starting to catch them in salt water. Um, yeah, besides the freshwater canals and ponds. So they might be a little bit of an issue for us here in Southwest Florida. And I even hear they extend all up to, towards like the Orlando area. So yeah, it's a little bit of a concern. They definitely go up there. I know a guy that fishes some state forest, even slightly northeast of Orlando and catches them all the time. I'm like, that's that's crazy. Yeah. But I am yeah. not surprised. You want to talk about a fish that can go through it like Maybe we're not supposed to keep them alive and transport them around, but like you can throw a handful of mine cichlids into a bucket with no aerator with sink tap water and they'll yep. be alive for two, three days. I'm like, yep. these things are nuts. And like, I'll, I'll chunk them for both in. I'll just cut their head off, run a hook through their nose and stick it out there. And like an hour and a half later, you'll reel in a, a head that's still kicking. I'm like, these things are yeah. wild, but kind of makes them for, uh, for good bait. But, yeah, that's a, a, a where those aren't in Guyana, are they? No, no, no. Those are like Central State America State. or something. Central America, you got it. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's nuts. So anyway, I mean, that the Amazon stuff's what's interesting to me a lot about what you've done because you've made multiple trips, right? I mean, when did when did you start kind of launching these expeditions? Like, how did that start? Because for me, I, I will say this: I feel like I speak on behalf of a lot of people. Because obviously that is for a lot of people in the circles that I run in anyway. That's like, that's that's the trip. Like that is the place. But it's sort of like you don't really know where to begin. You don't know how to get your ducks in a row. Like there's not really good resources for like like people who've gone and done it that can explain the planning. And, you know, it's, it's sort of hard to relate to pe- people that go do it. Like what for your journey as an angler, at what point in what year did you decide this is what I want to go to? want to go do and like how did that come about all right let me let me start where um i got my love for south america the amazon Uh, when i was a young child when i was about 12 years old Mm -hmm. my father presented me i believe it was for my birthday a pamphlet a gate one travel agency pamphlet he said (laughs) pick a trip any trip and we'll go on it so i'm looking (laughs) at the pamphlet there's disney cruises you know any uh, something that a kid would want to do. But then I saw Brazil, Amazon jungle expedition to the jungle, sea monkeys, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, dad, that's where I want to go. <laughs> I always crocodile hunter growing up. So I always loved snakes and, and uh, I always wanted to go to some sort of jungle. So that's where I decided I wanted to go. And my dad kind of chickened out. My mom went with me down to Brazil <laughs> and that's where my inspiration uh, came from. I did not know of the fish that were living in the river besides like the piranhas. Everyone knows what a piranha is, obviously. Yeah, right? yeah. So um, ever since then, I've been going to the Amazon or some sort of jungle around the world every year, just about. And I really didn't start fishing in the Amazon until I was about, I would say, 19 or 20 years old. So, so in the, it, you know, and I mean to cut you off, what were you doing? You went there when you were about 12, 13 years old and you were making exactly. these trips. So what were you doing? Like sightseeing, yeah. like taking pictures, like were you yeah. with some kind of like tour agency? Like who's facilitating this? Like, I don't, I mean, obviously you're not going to take like a Jersey boy or a Florida boy and just 
drop them in the jungle? Like, are you being guided by somebody? Is there a lodging set up? Like, I would feel so lost out there. So, like, 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 tell me about that side of it. Like, what were you really doing if not fishing? Yeah, so absolutely there was a tour agency and tour guides and whatnot that, you know, picked us up from the airport and brought us to these lodges out in the jungle, dragging my mom through the jungle with me. Uh, we were obviously sightseeing, seeing the meeting of the waters, say, in Brazil, um, taking pictures of monkeys. I was always interested in reptiles and snakes. So I would be a 15-year-old kid running around the Amazon jungle at nighttime with a flashlight <laughs> looking for fertilants and bushmasters and whatever else and bringing them back to the cabin. Hey, Ma, check this out. Look, I just found a fertilance, you know, all excited. So that's kind of what I was doing down there for uh, quite some time. And then I always loved fishing and realized after a while that there's some serious potential to catch some mega fish in the Amazon. Yeah, that's funny. I, I can totally relate. I remember when I was, I don't know, probably the first time that I had really gotten into looking at the Amazon, I was, I think you and I are probably cut from the same cloth. When I was younger, I was like, like die hard over reptiles and amphibians. I was like Mr. Snake Kid, always wanting yeah. to go out and catch snakes and turtles and frogs. And, you know, that's just, just what we did. That's just what I did. Like, as soon as the sun came up, it was like, it was like 007 sneak out of the house so I don't have to do chores and then come back late. You know, to avoid, I don't know, if we're in the house and we're not occupied, we're doing some kind of chores. So I was sneaking right. out sometimes with nothing but some shorts on, crawling around the bushes looking for snakes. But I remember, um, do you remember the game Oregon Trail back when we were yes. younger? So a yes. lot of people don't realize there was an Amazon Trail, too. And it was I in like, yeah, <laughs> it was at the same time. It was like the, the lesser known version of the game, Amazon Trail. And I remember they had it as like, I don't know. It must have been like an educational game when I was in like, I want to say the fifth grade. So I played Amazon trail and it, you know, it was like, it's the same thing. You're just dying left and right. Like you get bitten bit by a mosquito. You died of malaria. But I just, I remember, you know, it's this, this terrible graphics video game, but I remember you could harpoon Arapaima. I'm like, what is that? What is that? It might've had a different name. That might have been one of the other local names. Yeah, I think it might have been that. But that was actually, and it's kind of, it's, you know, it's like this memory that's stuck in my mind. That was the first time I'd ever heard of this fish. And, but like from then on, I like dreamed of going to the Amazon, mostly just for like the, the reptiles and stuff like that. I like, right. I mean, corny as could be. I'd like put snakes and stuff in my room, like toys, like set up and decorated my room like a jungle. <laughs> but I mean, that's always stuck with me. And so now being older and like, you know, my passion is more towards fishing than towards other things. Not that I won't stop and observe like I, that side of me will always come out. But uh, but it's like it's it's this weird thing where you don't see as many American anglers going and doing it. And if you do, they're like doctors, they're lawyers, they're like these, I don't know, people that aren't even as relatable. So. Even but, so. There's not a lot of American anglers going down or doctor lawyers yeah. at all. Yeah. So when I saw you, I was like, oh, this is this is awesome. Like, And, and you clearly done it a few times, but um, eventually you started kind of looking more towards the fish. And I mean, what were your early targets? Like when you start setting off these expeditions and these trips, are you are you going alone? I mean, at some point you're I imagine your mom's not taking you. But I mean, at <laughs> some point you're just like. Are you going completely? I, I would feel like nervous to go 
all by myself? Like, did you have a kind of a partners in this whole thing or, or what? Most of the time I brought at least one guy with me, my really good friend, John Kisman. Um, he was kind of the only one out there that understood uh, what I do. And he had the same kind of passion for fishing. And then he just brought it to that extreme, like going to the Amazon or Costa Rica fishing with me. But I have done it by myself several times in the Amazon and in Central America. And uh, even when I get there, I sit there and think to myself, what am I doing here by myself? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's kind of a funny place to be alone in your thoughts. Uh yeah. At middle of a jungle wondering what what the what in the hell have I got myself into? I but, think uh, that every single time I go. Yeah. So like the early trips, I mean, did did you already kind of know the potential and the kind of fish that lived there, or was it like, oh man, I, I want to catch a piranha? And then it like graduated up and then it graduated <laughs> up. I mean, what were like the earlier yeah. trips like like? Yeah. Were you just kind of fishing trip. blind or well, okay. The earlier trips was blind. Yes. I was going down there um, and on a canoe with a native guide and we're catching black piranhas, red belly piranhas and mm -hmm. bringing them back to eat. And then it progressed to using one of the piranhas for bait and catching a larger catfish. Then it just kept on progressing from there. And then um, the recent years within the last decade, my goal has always been the Pirariba or the Lao Lao catfish, the giant catfish of the Amazon jungle. Yeah, and that's yeah. always my target when I go. It's the Pirariba, bigger and bigger one every single time. Right. Yeah, that's yeah. that's awesome. I'm I'm familiar with those. I actually, the before we started recording, I had mentioned the Dutch guys that I had on here, and and one of them literally just came back from doing uh an expedition catching those. And they caught one that was like seven feet long. Yeah. And uh, and he is very adamant that those are the hardest fighting freshwater fish there are, even more so than white sturgeon, more than a lot of saltwater fish. So that's pretty interesting to me. But uh, you know, it's 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 kind of funny. I actually, I mean, there's obviously like those high pedestal like fish, those like those like Mount Rushmore species that live in the Amazon. But some of like the lesser known, smaller, like more like ferocious type species are actually the ones that kind of interest me the most and one of the big ones for me i remember i was first watching an episode it was larry Dahlberg was down there and he was like one of the first guys that that was sort of putting that on tv he was like going down there and and, and let and showing people that it existed and he was catching those wolf fish or aymara or anjumara it seems like they got a lot of different names i don't know if there's a lot of different like variations of the fish but man, you got some photos of some big ones, and those are ones that I'm really interested in. Like, did, and for people who are listening, they're like, "What in the hell are these guys talking about?" Just describe the look of these things, like the attitude that they have, just the physical characteristics of these things. So the local people in Guyana call them river demons, okay? Because they literally are a demon. Yeah. It is actually one of the only fish in the world that I'm pretty scared of. I've had one actually come out of the water and bite me for no reason when I was staying oh in. Oh my Cuba. gosh! Yeah, I had the scar on my you got leg. Got a scar, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, but what do they look like? Uh, a lot of teeth, um, bright reddish colored eyes, uh, black as night, and just just a powerhouse. I mean, just one big solid muscle block that's looking to eat whatever swims in front of them or walks in front of them. I guess as a human, you know. I had one come up and just attack me for no reason. 
So that is the fish that I am terrified down there. And if you guys go check out my recent trip down there on YouTube, you'll see how scared I was holding this big old Aymara. Mm -hmm. So yeah, they, they really are ferocious and they truly are the river monsters of the Amazon. Yeah. That, that one has got such a like physically imposing looks like the head structure. It's like, I, it is as close to like almost canine of any fish yeah. that I've seen. Like, that's a good way to describe it. Yeah, that it's like, and then their teeth are really interesting because it looks like they're like almost sheathed behind like flesh. So it's like their teeth and their gums and their like lips sort of like fused together, and it just had this, yeah. like you like you said, like demon fish. The locals named it right because a very demonic looking face on them. But it's almost like, I I guess being like the bowfin enthusiast. You know, they don't have the long fin, but there's something very much like if you took a bowfin and injected like a, a massive quantity of steroids into them and like I, they became some sort of like, I don't know, Frankenstein version of a bowfin. That's sort of what I would describe them as. Is it a prehistoric species? Because they have that like real prehistoric look to them. They just look old. They absolutely are. They have been around for millions of years. They've been around since the time of the dinosaurs, these Aymara, the wolffish. And actually how you kind of described it, a kind of like a, a bowfin kind of type fish, it's kind of like a Resident Evil version of a bowfin, <laughs> yeah. kind of like injected with the T-virus and it mutates into this yeah. like zombie bowfin. Yeah. Well, I'll try to like superimpose this video with some of your images, uh, and so yeah, people can see what these things look like because it's like, I mean, you look at a piranha and it's, you know, people think piranhas also got big, sharp teeth. I'm like, I'd be way more concerned about that. Granted, it's probably, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure they get territorial and crazy. And obviously you had an encounter with them, but it's, uh, man, it's one of those fish that I imagine like you look in the eyes of. It's like, oh, God. But uh, yeah. like their behaviors, like are they active predators are they just eating meat off the bottom a little bit of both are you catching them on the bottom on top is it like a visual type of fishing I mean, what are you really throwing at these things so it's a little it's a little of both kind of how you're describing a active predator and a scavenger mm -hmm. now these fish are commonly found in blackwater lagoons um, very slow moving to almost stagnant and wood piles kind of just sitting there waiting for a victim to swim by um, and they will certainly eat something dead on the bottom of the river or lagoon. But as you mentioned, Larry Dahlberg, uh, Larry Dahlberg invented a lure called the Whopper Plopper. Mm -hmm. And he would be casting these Whopper Ploppers and these Aymara and other species of wolffish would be coming up and attacking these actual Whopper Ploppers on the surface. So yeah, they do, they do attack birds and other animals that are towards the surface of the water. Absolutely. And I even think they will attack something close to the river's edge, as there is guides missing fingers from these Aymara. Mm. There'll be flying fish right on the beach, and the Aymara actually came up and grabbed one guy's hand and took two fingers off. So, Good Lord. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was, no... That's one thing that I've noticed like when I watched the videos of them, like the, the sheer intensity and like the ferocity that those things annihilate a top water is like I there's not a lot of fish that parallel that and it seems like the pure chaos that they bring when you hook them I'm like these things are so awesome I'd go so far as to say like 
I don't know, man. I if I if or when I make that trip happen, I feel like I will be as eager to catch one of those as one of the more like premier recognized Arapaima level fish, dare I say, species. But like that one would be I I'd probably even bypass the peacocks to like specifically look for those things because that's one that's like those are probably one of the coolest fish I think globally that I'd want to go after. So absolutely. And that's the type of fish that if you do go to Guyana or anywhere in the Amazon to fish for, you have to dedicate days to that fish. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because you'll get a lot of hookups, but not a lot of landings. They'll break you off in those wood piles. It's almost instantly. Um, and it, it just takes a lot of time to find the right locations to find the true gigantic ones. Yeah. So you can't have a day where you're going for peacock bass and wallfish. You're going for wallfish that day. So you yeah. got to dedicate time. Yeah, that's an interesting one. I've, I kind of noticed like in some of those river systems, at least around Guyana, it's like I don't see as many of them caught, but the ones that are caught are really big. And then I've seen other lodges in different areas where they kind of specialize in wolf fish and you might get more of them, but maybe not as big, but, um, yeah, that's, that's an interesting one. But so I I have always been interested. This is like not even fishing related. I mean, it's part of the experience. So you're out there and I mean, you're really remote. What, what are you eating? So I'm like, I'm worried I'd get hungry. And then like, you have no option. You're eating whatever's available. Like what, what kind of cuisine are you having on these trips? Well, things have certainly advanced since uh, the first few times I've gone, but let's bring it back to the day, okay? Yeah. <laughs> you're, eating, <laughs> you're eating things that you catch. You're eating piranhas. You're eating the leopard catfish. Mm-hmm. Um, the natives will go out and hunt uh, laba, which is also known as a goody, essentially a giant water rat. Um, okay. Oh, delicious. <laughs> yeah. yeah. My stomach uh, is growling. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> which is a type of bird, kind of like a dumb bird that just sits there and is easy to, to capture. Um, and it tastes just like turkey. Yeah. So yeah, you're eating a lot of bush meat and a lot of stuff from the environment. Now, nowadays, there's actually a lodge where I go, which is first time I saw it was actually this past uh, October. It was very impressive. And there's refrigeration and they have actual chicken and rice and beef mm-hmm. and kind of normal food that you would eat here in America. So definitely advanced, but you can experience some of the bush meat if you ask them. Yeah. You know what? I'd actually be a little let down if it was too cozy. You know, I was always interested in that side of the experience. Like if, if you even get to take like an active participation in it, even or you know, because I, I would hate the idea. And sometimes I get the impression of some of the, like the videos that I've watched of other people going out there where it's like, I would feel guilty as a client if it was like the like my the impression I was giving the locals is like, you know, they're chauffeuring me around. Like right. you're you're here to make me comfortable. Like you're right. here to serve me. And so it's like I would want to take a little bit more of like a an active participation in the whole process. And you know, you see the videos where, um, you know, one of the ones that got to me. I watched a video a while back, and you know, a lot of times with the Arapaima, especially where you're getting into these these. These, these lagoons during the dry season, you got to kind of forge a path through absolute hell and you're dragging boats. And I know you've been there and I want you to describe that to me because that looks so cool. But I literally have watched ones where it looked like the person being guided was in the boat while these guys are dragging them. I'm like, get your ass yeah. out of that boat, grab a machete and start working. 
Or do they yeah. say, no, no, you can't work. Oh, it's a liability. Like, what is the nature of this whole thing? Uh, where I go, I don't think there's such thing as liability. So you're, <laughs> you're out of the boat. You're dragging the boat yeah. through mud and you're dragging a boat through the jungle, mm -hmm. up rapids um, to get to these locations where the Arapaimas are. Some of the locations are a lot easier than others. They're kind of still connected to the main river. Yeah. There's still enough room to paddle your way through. But as, as the dry season progresses, those little channels dry out and you have to drag the boat through the jungle, sometimes a mile or more to get to these Arapaima. Actually, um, my second Arapaima video from this series, you could see my friend John and this guy Dave out of the boat and actually laying out logs across the trail, dragging the boat over logs to kind of give it the little extra the momentum over the mud. And so it, it, it's definitely, um, it, you need to have the passion to catch the Arapaima to actually mm -hmm. do it because it's work. It's not a, it's not a vacation where you're sitting on a boat, trolling, waiting for the fish to come up and eat. Yeah, yeah. It's actually working. So it, it, it requires a lot of passion. Well, I'm always so impressed by those native guides. Like those seem like the unsung heroes of a lot of these operations, but they're human beings. And I sometimes, like I said, I, I can't get over it. I'm like, when I watch some of these videos where, I, I mean, I've seen ones where it's like the angler yelled at the guide. I'm like, dude, there's no way they're going to be as eager to put you on the fish and set you up for success if you're, I don't know, not helping, right. acting like an entitled little brat. So, you know, it's, you know, I think uh, maybe it's just, it's a character thing, but that's interesting. I am also interested too in the kind of gear you're bringing. Cause obviously I, I, this is like, I feel like this is, I'm hoping that this is my year, whether it's there or somewhere else. I got to get out of this country for the first time, never done it. So I'm like, you know, I'm really, you know, that's why I really wanted to talk to you. You've done this and you live in my town. Yeah. It's like your travel hub is all the same thing that I'll be experiencing but um when you're planning to execute these kind of trips and i imagine you probably had piss poor planning in some of the early ones or did you ever have any trips where like you got out there in the early days and realized damn you know i didn't bring this or crap i should have brought that i mean just explain to me some like the gear selection process because i know you can only bring so much but like what what are you bringing with you on these kind of trips so kind of in the early days um if i didn't bring enough hooks or weights uh, and there's no tackle store out in the Amazon jungle. Yeah, so yeah. you got to be prepared to get snagged, especially like if you're fishing for IMAR, you're going to get snagged. You're going to lose hooks. You're going to lose weights. Mm -hmm. So you got to make sure you bring the adequate amount that'll last you the duration of your trip. Um, but reel wise, you need some heavy duty, in my opinion, spinning reels are the easiest to use out there as you have to cast chunks of bait towards the Arapaimas or long distances. Yeah. Uh, so personally, I use a Daiwa Expedition, which is a Japanese reel. It's an 8,000 size loaded up with 80 pound braid and this yeah. braid. Um, but, you know, you, you see shows like River Monsters and he's using Penn International 50 wides and whatnot. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, sure, you could bring it, but it's not practical to put it in a suitcase. You know, it weighs a lot. Um mm -hmm. And like someone like me, I don't have endless funds to, you know, to pay for the extra weights and bags and whatnot. Yeah. So um, a couple large spinning reels 
and it doesn't have to be like my $1,500 Daiwa Expedition. It could be something like a Pen Slammer, Pen Spinfisher, 10,000, 14,000 size, loaded up with some heavy braid. Uh, so you, you could definitely make a trip down there um, being budget friendly, but you, the most important thing is to make sure you have enough hooks, you have enough leader, and you have enough weights. That's the three most important things to bring with you down there. Yeah. Uh, and nowadays, a lot of, uh, like where I go in Guyana, there's spare rods. So just bring a couple of travel rods. I bring three piece travel rods with me that cost a hundred bucks a piece. And somehow these things hold up. Akuma Nomad travel rod, pretty amazing. Um, so uh, just bring what you need. Don't overdo it. You know, and I've also done that where I've overdone it. I brought way more than what I needed, rod, reel, yeah. and lures i brought like 200 lures with me a couple times and you end up using like a dozen you know the whole right. trip so well, maybe better to be over prepared than under prepared but yeah because that's what i was going to ask too because the variables in size of fish that you're catching could be you might on one hand catch a 400 pound something or you might be catching something small so i know you're bringing a lot of different size rods and reels are you i mean you know if, if somebody was to say bring four rods is that enough maybe two medium heavy and two heavy style boat rods or do you want to like go a little bit more than that and, and then on top of that like is there a idle style of fishing where you can fish multiple rods or like at the campsites do you have lines in the water or you know that kind of thing all right so like rod and reel wise kind of like my lineup for guyana for example is a shimano stratic 4000 reel 30 pound braid with a seven foot or seven six uh, travel rod, 10 to 20 pounds. And I usually bring one or two of those setups uh, just in case um, something was to happen to one, I have a backup. And I also bring a, uh, a bait caster with me, again, on another 10 to 20 pound bait cast rod. And then I bring two 30 to 60 pound travel rods with two larger 8,000, 10,000, 12,000 size or 14,000 size reels loaded up with heavy braid and do we fish at camp certainly we do uh but towards yeah. the middle and end of the trip you're gonna be way too tired to even think about sitting on the beach all night hoping for a catfish to bite right <laughs> the kind well let's talk about the catfish because it seems like there's so many different kinds you can run into but like i don't know give people listening like an idea of the caliber and the variety of catfish that that place has and like what how you're fishing for them what they might look like it's the, the potentials that are there well so just like anywhere in the world when you're fishing for catfish in guyana you're bait fishing for them so you're using chunks of piranha or whatever you catch early on in the day that's another thing you're catching your bait first thing okay so you're dedicating two or three hours of your day catching piranhas or whatever small fish to eventually go catfishing or whatever uh, mm -hmm. later on um so the catfish species down there obviously like we talked about before pureba the lalo catfish that is like the most recognizable catfish of the amazon anywhere in the amazon um but one of my favorites and one of the less known is the jow catfish yeah. that is like the bulldog of the amazon river talking about a fish that wants to get back down to those rocks break you off the whole fight is a fish just bending that rod, wanting to get back down to the bottom. That personally is one of my favorites to catch. One of the funniest, and again, another recon recognizable one is the red tail catfish. Mm. 
And I just love once we get them to the boat because of the crazy sounds these things make, all kinds of squeaking and clanking, yeah. and it's pretty funny. And they're also one of the most beautiful catfish, in my opinion, down there. Uh, yellow colors, bright red on the tail and fins. But there's several other uh, larger species, um, some that are barely, hardly even known about. Um, uh, even like another species of Pirariba that's down there. Actually, um, my largest Pirariba, they don't think was uh, the Brachyplatysoma uh, filamentosum. They don't think it was that species, which is the largest one known. This mm -hmm. is another one called a Pirimatuba that I caught. And this one was about 300 plus pounds. Oh, wow. It's a lesser known species. And no one knew that this catfish got to this size. So actually I have a picture of it. I could even show you right here. You can pull it up on, on, a, on your YouTube later on. Um, but uh, so there's a lot of species down there that people just don't know about yet. And that's what keeps me going back because you never know what's going to be on any of your line. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, I can pull the picture up. You said you, you pointed over your shoulder. Is this thing within reach? Yeah, I can grab it right here. Oh, yeah. It looks like you got a couple of interesting photos back there. Oh, we get into those in a little. Oh, my goodness. Look at this thing. So, I mean, it kind of, the picture's kind of cut <laughs> off. Obviously, it extends out further. Now, my travel rod was eight feet long, and this thing was slightly longer than my travel rod. And we estimated 300 pounds or so. And this is not your typical period of catfish. They look yeah. slightly different. And they didn't know this species actually gets the size. So it was pretty impressive. And at the same time, my friend John Kisman caught an actual Pirariba this size. Right. So we caught two giant catfish at the same time. I don't know if that's ever happened in the history of the Amazon. <laughs> that's nuts. You know what always makes me laugh is I, <laughs> I always notice like the, uh, the other stuff happening in the back of the picture too. <clears throat> I don't know. I'm very observative. The natives always look so bored. Like that guy, just no expression. He's just like, yep, here we are again. And then like the little John boat you're in, like it just get a kick out of that. I mean, it's, it, to me, it, the little things like that, like the little boats, it make it seems like it makes the experience way more satisfying than if you were in some sort of elite high powered vessel. You know, because it just doesn't match the terrain, you know what I mean? It doesn't not that a not that a John boat even with, with an outboard motor on it necessarily matches the terrain, but it's like I don't know, it's just it's one of those places that you, you don't want to what's the word? Like spoil with modern day Right. Thing. You know, right. not that I would want to go out there and be like trying to shoot them with bow and arrow, but, but, yeah. um, you know, you want to like preserve that level of humility in that kind of fishing. Um, just maybe it just to take away some of the distractions of more civilized life, but man, what if, now how does something like that, how does something like that fight? Because hmm. I see how long it is, but I know like looking down at it, like what, what is like the, the shoulder width on that thing looks massive. I mean, the tail alone, Looked like it was three feet wide. Yeah, yeah, and and it it was probably close to that. The head was probably close to about three feet wide. There's actually wow. another picture on my Facebook that you could check out of me sitting right next to the head of this giant Pirima catfish. Um, and you could see the broadness of its shoulders and its head. Um, did I actually measure the head across? I did not. 
So mm-hmm. that's a rough estimate, close to three feet across. Yeah, it, it just pretty gigantic. I think when they get that big, there's like nothing really to prove, like pulling out tape measures. Just like, okay, we're we're we've reached a different like caliber of animal here. It's just it's just in that that uh, category of huge, and it doesn't matter yeah. whether it's seven feet or seven foot two. But um, yeah, it's interesting. It and then this is Guyana, right? This is Guyana. Yes. Yeah. So I think um, like the guys I mentioned earlier, the Dutch guys, the guy that I talked to, he was in Suriname actually. Uh-huh. So I think I I want to make sure I'm correcting myself because I I might have said he was in Guyana, but yeah, he was he was in Suriname, which might be maybe a little more known for that species. But Guyana just seems so interesting to me. And and now the river you're we keep saying Guyana, 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 the main river system that's running through there. I want to make sure I pronounce it right. Is it Essequibo, Essequibo? Essequibo, you said it right the first time. Absolutely, yep. It just seems like on a global scale, like that is the ultimate layer of giant fish. How many different species live in there that can that can or potentially can reach a hundred pounds? Let's say. I would say there's probably close to a couple dozen species, twenty twenty four species that can potentially reach a hundred pounds plus. Oh, that that's insane! I would have never even guessed that much. I know. I don't know all the catfish that live there, but I know a lot of them can. And there's the obvious ones like air pime. I don't know if there's different. Are some of those strange stingray that live in there? Uh, are, are there some of those weird stingray living in that river too? Yes, there's oscillated stingrays. And again, that's something that you could see in my series. The last couple of videos, uh, we had a run of stingrays come through the last couple of days. And uh, there, there were smaller sized ones, but they can get well over 100 pounds, which I have caught in the past. Oh, wow. So like, like kind of pulling a, the plug out of the river, the drain plug, you know? Yeah. <laughs> the um, I, I always go back to the Arapaima one because, it, you know, for I think everybody has like their dream fish, like the, the fish that's like kind of at the top. And I think for a lot of freshwater guys, especially, that's probably the one. For me, I would say that's probably the one but uh you know when you're going after those things like is that like a sit and wait game or is it an active style of fishing is it a lot of canvassing the top of the water to see where they're at i mean what's the nature of the pursuit of that fish are they spooky and weary of the boats or do they not care like what what describe like i don't know the character of the animal yeah so arapaima fishing is um definitely very difficult um, they do spook extremely easy. So they're not used to obviously aluminum boats and people being inside their ponds and lagoons with them. So the slightest sound will scare these arapaima away and you have no idea they'll, they'll scatter into the flooded forest and you have no idea where they are. Uh, so it's kind of a sit and wait. You have to be extremely quiet and you're waiting for their signature roll, the arapaima roll coming up for them gulping air. They're actually an air breathing fish, which is kind of cool. So they'll come up and you'll hear them go bear and then roll. And once they do that, that's when you're casting your chunk of piranha about 20 feet in front of their head. And then you better hold on because things get very exciting after that. Now, are you like feeling the bite? Are you watching the line go out? I mean, yeah, it just so seems it's... so intense to me. <laughs> So I've I've had several different experiences with Arapaima, but a lot of the times it's kind of like you're casting ahead and you're waiting about two minutes and you're waiting for the line to kind of jump and you reel down and set the hook on them. 
Okay, because I was curious, like, are you running circle hooks? Is it like a normal J-hook, or you can use whatever you want to? Or I didn't know if they were like, you know, I know that more and more and more they're kind of putting more, like, protections. They're realizing the value of this resource. But are they, like, restricting tackle to a point that it's got to be barbless, it's got to be this, it's got to be that? There, there is no restriction, at least in Guyana, just yet. Um, you do want to try to use circle hooks with Arapaima. Uh, just so they do not swallow the baits. Um, back in the day, I did use J-hooks. I'm, I'm originally from New Jersey, so I always kind of wrecked fished up in New Jersey, and you're yeah. swinging on a bite. So yeah. circle hooks was a foreign thing to me, but I realized the importance of using a circle hook, especially on a fish like an Arapaima. Right, and then I guess the, the signature thing with them is their propensity, despite their size, to, to jump. Like when they're yeah. describe the fight of these things, because that's obviously I mean, a lot of people are listening. They're like, all right, all right, this is great. This is great. But like, how do they fight? Like, what's the some people? They just want to know what the fight's like. I mean, how does an animal that looks like that fight so, into your line? A lot of people here in Florida that that fish can kind of relate because it's similar to a tarpon fight. Um, there's a lot of jumping, a lot of head thrashing. Um, and speaking of the head thrashing, those head thrashes will bring you to your knees. I mean, you could even see it in my my series. My friend Chris, he hooked a giant one that was 300 pounds plus, and the head shake, the first initial head shake, almost brought him to his knees. Uh, but uh, I've had arapaima where they nonstop jump and head shaking around. Then I have arapaima that kind of don't even realize what's happening until you bring them to the shoreline, and that's kind of what happened to me this mm. past time. Um, if you see my video, uh, the Arapaima didn't fight much during actual battle, but as soon as I hopped in the water, out of near the shore, that's when he, he was jumping in the trees and I'm trying to like bear hug this 150 pound fish as it's jumping out of my arms, you know? So, uh, and that's another thing. You have to be very careful with the Arapaima. Um, I have been bashed in my head by one, but I'll tell you what. I saw stars. It's like taking a metal baseball bat and just slinging it into your temple. Uh, people do get hurt by these fish. So that's one thing you have to be wary of. Actually, uh, Jeremy Wade River Monsters, he was um, he was seine netting Arapaima in a stocked lake, I believe, in Brazil. And one speared him right in his chest. And he still has heart issues to this day. So definitely a fish you got to be careful with, especially once, uh, once you get him to the shoreline. It's kind of like hand-to-hand combat. Yeah, because I know their head looks like it's solid bone. It's like I, when I look at that thing and just like the the scales, the structure of the head, the way they behave, the way they fight, it's almost like a mix. It's like you took like a, a like you said, like a tarpon and like crossed it with an alligator gar and like a 300 pound snakehead and like yeah. bundled them all into one. Um, That's just the way of describing it. What an animal, but I, I mean, and then I, you look at the mouth. I mean, is it easy to get the hook through that? I mean, it's like I mean, you're driving it through like almost solid bone, aren't you? So, uh, yes, the lips are almost like solid bone, but they do have soft palate, kind of like a tarpon does. So you need to make sure that you're using a wide enough gap hook that you could actually get the hook around her lip into that soft area to hook them properly. Yeah. Well, and then you mentioned too that they they get afraid of sounds. So like I'm envisioning like if you hook one and it's 
starts going absolutely bonkers in the middle of this lagoon. You you pretty much blow out the spot, don't you? Or or do you actually have a chance to catch more than one in, in the same day in the same area? So uh, my friend Chris and I, this past trip, we caught both of ours in the same day at the same lake, but there was definitely um, a couple hours in between. So I caught mine first and then we kind of almost gave up because we really didn't see much, uh, many hour pima rolling around after that. And about like an hour and a half, two hours later, they started coming back to the surface. And that's when my friend Chris was able to catch his. So, yeah, it, it does kind of blow up the spot after you catch one. Yeah, that's that's nuts. And then like these like lagoons and lakes are probably being replenished and like almost like restocked every rainy season between rain and dry season. It's like maybe a new brood of fish is coming in and out and getting because they're essentially stranded in these. You yeah. call it a lagoon. You can call it an oxbow lake, whatever you want. But I mean, they're they're stuck in there, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I mean, like I said, there is some that uh, it doesn't totally dry out and it's possible for the fish to move in and out. But for the most part, they do get cut off from the main riverway. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's outrageous. <laughs> I don't even know how you, in some of your photos, like the photos that you have holding them, it's like. You know, is that it, it looks like something that you can't even hold with one person. It seems like a lot of times I notice there's like a minimum of two people holding on to this thing, but uh that's just why um, what's the big what's the biggest one you've managed to catch, like lengthwise? I don't know. You you can always guess weight, but it's like I'm always more interested in how like long these things are. Um, so I didn't actually measure my biggest arapaima, but again, I did put my rod right alongside of it. My rod was eight foot long. And was about the same length. Yeah. So, so it's yeah. over seven feet. For yeah, sure. yeah. Over seven feet for sure. That's unreal. That is that is nuts. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> I could talk all day about the fishing thing, but I what, what I appreciate about what you do is like you don't just make it like, oh, you don't seem like you go to the Amazon and have that one track mind, like I'm here to catch fish. I love that you tie in like the childhood passion that has continued on for, for the reptiles. You do a lot of like putting on uh, the headlamp and going out at night and, and looking for the, for the local wildlife. Tell me a little about, about some of that. And I see your photos in the background. It's, it's clear that that is like, you know, you weigh two passions and, and balance the two out. I see this it looks like a yeah. cotton mouth and a photo of a, of an alligator alligator. And then I have photos of period of catfish and right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I have, I have photographs or uh, posters of Bigfoot over here and yeah so uh, I kind of have a lot of passions but it's all outdoor related yeah, um, we, we must be in the man cave right now <laughs> <laughs> yeah my living room <laughs> yeah the whole house yeah, but whole uh house. that's cool like I guess a lot of people would probably be scared to go out and do that I know you mentioned Bushmasters and and so I'm familiar with some of those species it's like you know man it's like the risk maybe that you're running because I don't imagine the nearest medical facility is all that close. And the ones that are around probably don't have the latest and greatest medical technology, but like what kind of animals are you finding out there? Uh, so for example, uh, we went out one, one of the nights with headlamps spotlighting for different reptiles like caimans and snakes and whatnot. And, uh, I found my target species this past trip, which is an Amazon tree bug. I always wanted one as a kid. I always thought they were really cool. And uh, this past trip, I got my chance to actually put my hands on one. But how it happened was kind of funny. I was with my friends, and my one friend, John, is not that fond of reptiles. 
So, <laughs> so I spot an Amazon tree bow above us up in a tree. And he's looking at me. I'm looking at him. And I'm saying, I'm getting that thing down. Yeah. He starts screaming, Eric, don't shake the tree. Do not shake that tree. And I'm sitting there <laughs> and I'm rattling the tree. And I have this Amazon tree ball fall into my right hand, bites the heck out of my hand. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm there for the YouTube video. <laughs> so uh, it's always an adventure when you're with me um, because I'm definitely the one that's looking for these snakes and other wildlife. But uh, we, we saw tapir, we saw macaws, mm. toucans, all kinds of different bird life, um, other reptiles uh, and deers and stuff like that. So there's, yeah. a, there's a lot of stuff you can encounter while you're fishing down there. So it's kind of like a, um, it, it's, you know, you have different experiences from the cultural being with the native people. Yeah. Yeah. Fish to seeing wildlife. So it, it's a pretty cool experience when you're down. That, there. And I like that you mentioned that, like the cultural side of thing. I think it's so important. Like, like I would hope that you're kind of having opportunities to show gratitude. Um, I don't know. And, and even to be, like a representative of where we're from and leaving a positive impression on the people there right. that, you know, you, you respect them, you appreciate their way of life. You respect like their area. Um, Cause I'm, you know, they probably see a lot of different people come through, but I mean, are you getting to interact with these folks? Are you talking with them? Are you getting like a chance to kind of, I don't know, get even a quick window into like their, their way of life. Cause that fascinates me. Those communities that are living along the rivers and, and still, you know, sustenance fishing sustenance hunting and like you know and earning their keep out there like that's that's pretty cool yeah yeah so um uh, you certainly uh you certainly get to speak with them and hang out with them and like this past trip i even like hung out with like the cooks you know uh, i feel like if you go to a hotel you're not going into the kitchen and talking to the cooks right mm, yeah so um, I got to find out like where they live, what villages they're from and how their life was. Um, they were showing me pictures of their homes and whatnot. So you definitely get to experience, um, you know, their life, their culture and how they live every single day. And there's no uh, Publix around the corner for them to go food shopping. Yeah. So they are definitely relying <laughs> off of the river and the jungle behind them. So it, it's pretty neat to see how they live. And how in tune they are with the jungle and the river. They hear a sound and they know immediately where it is, what it is. And like our guide, Rockland, he was calling in animals that he heard from a distance. And all of a sudden, after him making his sounds, he was like hitting his throat and making a sound at the same time. And yeah. all of a sudden, these police birds ended up right off the bow of her boat. A tapir came by. You know, it's just, just crazy how in tune they are with the jungle out there. Yeah, I'm always interested in that side of things and like, you know, not not passing the opportunity to, I don't know, just just mingle with the locals, Um, because in what made me think of that is I remember listening. I I wish I could remember where I saw this, but I never forget. I was listening to some interview with a guy. I guess he was one of the original uh, people that was guiding people around. It might have been the Rewa area. And yeah. um, during the early days of them kind of establishing that area for fishing for non-locals or whatever, and he had described basically showing um, these outfitters or these people that were traveling the rivers. He was just showing them everything, taking them all the places. They're catching all these fish. And then he said, like, you know, the next season or like seasons going forward, you know, it, it and at first 
the people coming up river would stop by and check in with them and say hello. And that, you know, there'd be some communication. And he said, as time went on, he, they would see these people that were traveling all this way to come to their waters and the rivers, the boat would just keep going. They weren't stopping. So they were just going and, you know, they got the information they were shown, they were shown, you know, what to do, where to go. And then once they got that information, it was like, they didn't need him anymore and kept going. Yeah. I was like, you know, that's, that's so unfortunate. And like our responsibility is like anglers, especially for my, like you, you are America to these people. You know what I mean? Like yeah. if you're yeah. out there making that impression that, you know, you, you, you don't value, I don't know, their way of life and like respect this as their home. I, it, you know, for me and you, it's like, you know, you respect somebody's living room when you walk into their front door and then out there, that's, that's their living room. So yeah. it's really interesting to me, but, um, Man, I could pick your brains all day about this Amazon stuff. And I think we'll be able to because I mean, we got to get together in, in person soon enough anyway. And honestly, if, if that if that is a trip you're planning on doing this year, that's a trip I really want to do. Uh, we're going to have to start picking up the communication going forward anyway because, okay. man, I got to do that. And, like, you're, you're such a good source of information for somebody who's, like, right where I live, who's done it time and time again so i can kind of pick your brands like what do you you know how do i need to prepare or we, we, do i need to bring bug spray i guess we we talked about the snakes we talked about the fish we talked about the birds I mean, man it's the creepy crawlies i'm kind of worried about like what what's gonna get on me in the middle of the night but uh but anyway we won't slow down for that because you've done other kinds of fishing but i am interested when you go and you experience a high like that, like you kind of reach, I don't know, the highest level of freshwater fishing, do you struggle at all with coming back to Florida and and being able to find fulfillment in our home waters? Um, that that has certainly happened before. Yeah, I mean, you catch these big arapaimas and giant periwinkle catfish, right? And you come home and you're catching a largemouth bass that's half a pound, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but you know, at at the end of the day. I have passion for fishing, yep. so I don't care if I'm catching a 400-pound pure reba or a four-ounce bluegill. So the passion's yep. there. Um, so it, it yeah, it, it can spoil it, but I still have a love for no matter right. what type of fishing it is. That's that's the answer I'm secretly looking for. There's a purity there that, that you know it really doesn't doesn't matter. And you know it's funny we mentioned both in a few times. I've been yeah. at least privileged enough to do some cool things here in the States, but I'll always tell people of all the fish, the one that always kind of like brings me back is one that a lot of people think is a trash fish. Like what? Yeah. Like that? Yeah. And I will always, I will always consider like that the fish for me that really like big, like made me an angler. And so, um, and I may even go do that this Friday. I haven't even gotten out yet this year, but that's like one type of fishing that, uh, it doesn't matter where I go on this side of the globe or the next. Uh, that that will always be the one for me. So um, that's a good answer. But I do want to quickly touch on. And I know we're now we're running out of time. I got another another guy coming up. So that's. Uh, but I I can't let this go by without talking about a different style of fishing I've seen you do. Where were you when you? It looks like you're popping, like out on the ocean on I don't know reefs or something, getting rooster fish, getting big kubera snapper. Uh, where, where was that at? Cause that is a style of fishing that especially up in recent times has become real interesting to me. 
Yeah. So I think you're referring to my trip to Panama in 2019, right before this whole pandemic started. Okay. Um, that was in Northwest Panama. And we were popping these outer islands up to 60 miles offshore for roosters and cubaras and other uh, exotic reef fish. Yeah, that, that was that was an absolute blast. That's actually one of my favorite fishing is top water on the reefs in, in the Pacific Ocean. Yeah, I'm embarrassed to say that when I see that kind of fishing, the one thing that sort of holds me back is, and it's so embarrassing, I am not made for the sea. I've tried it. I get out there, a little bit of chop, I'm blowing chunks, like, every time. Doesn't matter if I put what patches on the back of my ear, I'm taking Dramamine, I'm doing, I'm, I'm doing a seance, and it doesn't matter. Every time I get on rough water, I'm, I'm, I'm a goner. So I'm like, man, I want to go out and do that, but how embarrassing, you know, to be out there, and you're the guy that's, that's chumming overboard. You just got to keep on going, man. Right. That's, That's what it takes. Just keep going, and eventually your body will kind of get used to that momentum of going side to side, up and down. Yeah, maybe I just need to do it more. But uh, yeah, that's cool looking stuff. Those Kubera are really interesting, though. Those big yeah. old monster toothy fish. But uh, oh, yeah. but yeah, that's that's cool. Well, man, I know we're winding down a little bit. I got to keep getting prepared on this stuff, but, uh, but your, your, your stuff that you have on your YouTube channel on, on, on your, all your social pages is really motivating, especially for this contingency of people who are out there that are kind of like, I don't know, they're, they're struggling with the idea. Like, well, is this the year for me to go do it? Or man, I just, I got to wait one more year or well, when I get to this age and I don't have this baggage holding me back, you know, maybe then I'll do it. You know, I think a lot of people just struggle to just, go for it um and i think they can find a lot of motivation in in your content but um the people that are listening again just give a reminder where they can find you your youtube handle instagram any of that stuff all right so all my social media is pretty easy to remember because it's all the same thing it's jersey nfl fishing channel on youtube and instagram it's Jersey spelled J-E-R-Z-E-Y I-N-F-L fishing channel. So kind of to stand out a little bit more. And it was also a nickname in college, Jersey. <laughs> uh, but yeah, Jersey and FO fishing channel on YouTube. I try to consistently post my 8 p.m. every Saturday night. I try to keep it fresh. And I hope to see you guys on there. Any advice for somebody that's kind of juggling and weighing their options and unsure if they want to finally make this trip happen? just do it i mean what are you waiting for uh, i mean wait till you retire when you're 70 something years old i don't think you'd be running around the amazon jungle then do it now right, yeah do it live now so you might as well fulfill some uh you know some passions yep maybe have a little self-discipline unlike me and save your money you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah I think, I think that's the biggest thing for me and 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 my wife will be the one to thank for uh making me buckle down and and save up. I was like, man, the money just starts burning a hole in my pocket. And I want to go buy some fancy gear or blow it on this, but uh, you know, I think people have a little bit of discipline and and don't splurge. Maybe by the end of the year, they'll be surprised how much they have set aside to make these kind of trips. And for a lot of people, just doing it one time is all it takes. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Really, it's like uh, you don't necessarily have to be one of the guys that's out there every other month. But um, I can tell you what, though, if you do it once, it's going to become an addiction and you're going to want to do it again. So 
it's 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 something that'll stick with you for life and you'll want to keep on going and back and back again well on that note any other trips that you have like that are still in that bucket list phase that maybe are in the works that you haven't done yet that you do want to do yes there is a bucket list trip that i want to do is it in the works no because financially it, it's very hard to pull off um it's a trip to komodo island indonesia for two bucket list things Obviously, the Komodo dragons. Really want to see them. Now, are you going to try to catch one is the question that's important to ask. Yeah, I mean, you never know with me, but uh, probably not. Probably not. I don't want to die. So uh, I'll probably take a nice video for my YouTube channel and get all excited, kind of like the crocodile hunter. But uh, (laughs) the other thing I I want to catch is the giant Trevally or the GT. That, to me, is the ultimate predatory fish of all the oceans and that is my ultimate bucket list item uh and i will fulfill it i'm not sure when but it's gonna happen and it'll be on youtube i promise you so komodo dragons and giant trevally all in one trip i i can't imagine yeah you know what you seem like the guy for that one that that does sound interesting but that's awesome man eric I really appreciate you coming on here. Uh, we we got to link up sometime soon. There's no excuse at this point, whether it's for, I don't know what, something simple. I don't care. But uh, both and fishing, both and we can do that. We can definitely do that. That's a All that's right. an easy one. That's a low hanging fruit. Um, <laughs> so uh, yeah, we'll be messaging off camera about that. But man, I, I appreciate you coming on here. You, you've you again planted some of those seeds about going and doing these trips. Uh, so. We got to keep talking about that too off the record, but Eric, appreciate your time. I appreciate it. David. You have a good one. All right, man. Thank you for listening to the boundless pursuit podcast. If you enjoyed this show, your feedback comments and reviews are very important to me. Also, this podcast is just one element to a much bigger content outlet. I urge you to head over to www.haverodswilltravel.com where you'll find audio, visual, and written editorial content. That is three dimensions of awesome fishing content brought to you by a very dynamic team of anglers. I hope that you'll tune in next week as we continue to build this program and have interesting and skilled anglers each Thursday. Thank you for listening.